Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Christoph Morrow. He is a 34-year-old writer from Texas that now lives in Vancouver. He served in the U.S. Navy, has Tourette's, has gotten sober, and is an award-winning journalist. There's a lot of background and a lot of different things, so I'm happy to have Christoph here today. So thank you so much, Christoph. Why don't you tell the audience more about yeah. yourself? Uh, Shakespeare. Um, well, uh, like like you said, I grew up I grew up in Texas. I think I was born in the same hospital as Beyonce. I don't I'm not, I don't know that for certain. But there's just that energy that she left there. I picked it up. Is what I was looking for. <laughs> anyway, I'm kidding. Um, so uh, Shakespeare. Uh, I grew up in the deep south, and I had a I had a really rough childhood. Shakespeare, but I always found something noble um, in sacrifice, uh, in self sacrifice for, uh, especially uh, when the the cause seems abstract and so much larger than something you can conceive and 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 arrange properly in your head to like to understand and to justify and you do it anyway um i remember that was that that impulse i think was born when i saw that movie saving private ryan as a kid and it was the d-day invasion i ended up becoming a navy corpsman which is a medic um uh, because i i saw under fire the medic running uh to perform like you know rescue care uh on someone that had been wounded uh and it didn't matter that he was getting shot at. I thought that was extraordinary. Um, I thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen, especially as a kid. I just, um, especially when it comes to humans, uh, it seems uh, relevant always to, for us to like have a disclaimer, like we're flawed, we're flawed, but uh, sometimes we're not. Um, yeah. So I became a Navy corpsman and then, uh, discovered shakespeare shakespeare i have tourette's um shakespeare and uh then one of my one of my texts is that i say shakespeare uh, and uh i when i when i learned i had tourette's i didn't i didn't know then i wasn't diagnosed with anything because i couldn't figure out what it was uh, but that's what it was it was a it was a very late manifestation because tourette's uh syndrome is uh a syndrome is just a, a pattern of uh, symptoms uh, that uh, where the underlying cause is unknown. So Shakespeare, they don't know exactly what causes Tourette's, um, but it's uh, I consider I call it a river with eight mouths, you know, and they lead into the same. I don't know. They they all all the my symptoms flirt with each other. You know what I mean? OCD flirts with anxiety, depression, and all of that. You know. Well, great. I'm happy to, you know, hear about different parts of your life. We'll talk about the service a little bit. Um, since you were just talking about your Tourette's and one of your tics, would you be willing to kind of share about your tics and whether, mm -hmm. um, like, have they changed over time or kind of in what mm -hmm. moments might they be more severe or if you have control over them? Um, Shakespeare, Shakespeare. I generally I actually don't don't. I actually don't uh, have much control over them. Uh, they're and they're quite injurious. Uh, I, in fact, 
uh, I lost the use of my thumb for like several months recently, and I've only started to be able to use it uh, again, like a, as of a few weeks ago, and it still hurts a lot. Um, and I I involuntarily hit things with my fist, like punch things, like my desk, like the corners of things. <laughs> that's that's rough. Um, I punched myself in the face actually. Um, and in the, uh, and I, I jabbed my own eyes out. Um, and I, um, I punched, I, I like, I hit myself with the tips of my fingers and my throat. Like I jabbed my throat with my fingertips. Uh, it's a lot of really, uh, a lot of it is actually born of an extraordinary amount of physical violence, abuse growing up. Um, I was punished like relentlessly. And, and so, um, it's a, it's a really rare manifestation. I think of, I've only met one other person with Tourette's, uh, that I, I haven't even met this person. I've only know this person through someone else. I haven't met them yet, but they have the same problem. They, they self mutilate because of, a uh, uh, Shakespeare, their brain is so rigid and fixed on the notion that you have to receive violence every time you feel like you've done something wrong. Shakespeare. And so as I OCD, I have an obsessive compulsive disorder. So, I'm often uh, ruminating on my past and anything I've ever done, I've ever done that I'm ashamed of, and I punish myself phys- physically for it pretty, uh, uh, pretty aggressively. Shakespeare, and it's involuntary, um, but there's also a component of surrender to it after a certain point because, you know, the OCD and and the notion that you have done something wrong really envelops you and consumes you, and then you just you know, I said, like, I allow my fingers to dig further into my face and my eyes and, or I hit myself harder, you know, in some other way. And you mentioned how it was hard to get diagnosed. They didn't necessarily know, you know, kind of the cause of the Tourette syndrome. So what is it like, you know, say, just general going to the doctors and like, do you have a set group of people that they know your condition or is it constantly a, like, this is just part of who I am? Shakespeare. Um, well with Shakespeare, with physicians, it's actually, um, it's not super great. Uh, this, cause really, so it's most physicians are very uninformed. In fact, um, just to illustrate this uh, in two ways. One, no doctor I've met knows much about Tourette's at all, and they've had to look it up, which is understandable. Being a physician is a lot of work and a lot of knowing. You got to know a lot of different stuff, like an extraordinary amount of stuff. And then you have to be able to link all of those things together to like make sense of human anatomy and biology and chemistry. And so when I go to the, so like when I, when I meet physicians, I, I always have to instruct them often. And they generally, after a few minutes, they trust what I'm saying. And the other thing is, um, whenever I, for example, Shakespeare, I had a tick where I punched myself so hard in the eye that I gave myself a black eye. And I went to the hospital with my, with my ex, she was my wife at the time, um, Shakespeare. And everyone in the staff, all the staff, the different people in the ER were asking her if she felt safe. And I had the black eye. And they didn't, nobody asked me if I felt safe. They asked if she felt safe. And they did it in secret. And it was a super great feeling. And if you had been asked if you felt safe in that moment, what would you have said? You know, 
Um, in retrospect, I would say I wasn't safe. And that's because contextually my life um, was incompatible with like the way I want to live. I have a fondness uh, and affection for humans. Um, I really get a kick out of observing people and participating with people and making people laugh. Shakespeare, most especially make people laugh. I enjoy that the most. Um, in fact, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm really, uh, it's, it's really hard for me, um, you know, to, when, when I think about that time, uh, it was hard. I, I was alone. I was living out in the country and at Shakespeare, I wasn't driving at the time because, um, there's growing pains when you have a disease, you know, cause there Shakespeare, there's a lot of things that you learn you can or cannot do or, and things that you believed you couldn't do, you can do in, in truth. And so, um, like I drive now, but I didn't drive then. Uh, and so, and I've never been in an accident still. I still haven't been one. Um, and I've had Tourette's now for seven or eight years. Yeah, I've been diagnosed with it. And it was, that's when the symptoms started to be rather reliable. No. Yeah. Um, and so I, I wasn't, I didn't feel safe. I wasn't safe because I was depressed. I was, I was profoundly depressed. Now, do you find since this diagnosis, it's been a couple of years, you have more knowledge mm -hmm. of what's going on. Are personal relationships a struggle or are they something that you still strive for? Um, I, I, I do struggle Shakespeare with, um, personal relationships, Shakespeare with personal relation relationships because of my, because of my tics and because of Tourette's, uh, which is really just a way to describe a number of failures, uh, cognitive failures, right? Um, and one of those is that I can't, I can't regulate emo regulate emotion very well, uh, um, and it's and so it takes. Uh, there, my life has to be such that I pay attention to when I eat. Uh, I have to eat. I have to be diligent about when I eat and make sure that my blood sugar doesn't drop too low because that's like. I will literally go from like being the way I am now to being like, um, very, very suicidal, like really suddenly it's really, it's, it's really strange. And then I feel better 15 minutes after I've eaten, like it just goes away. And it's so frustrating. I cannot describe to you like what it can like, just all, if you have a day where it's, your eating is unreliable, uh, or your schedule is unreliable, uh, and doesn't accommodate, uh, for some of the, uh, some of the necessary things that you need to do, uh, preventative measures to protect yourself. Um, it's hard. It's hard to have friends. Definitely. So you've kind of set, you know, ways of life and structure to best function in a way that works, that you aren't hitting those suicidal moments. Do you have mm -hmm. a support system, whether personally virtually the ability to easily go to an er if needed shakespeare shakespeare oh my goodness yeah because i live in canada um which a lot of people complain um about canada's healthcare, or for some reason not here everywhere else <laughs> in the u i think in the u.s but canada's healthcare is amazing um the number of times i've had to go because i've injured myself like and i had to wonder if I broke a knuckle because I punched something so hard that at an, at a wrong angle. And so like it was swollen and I had to like, it made my hand look all 
anyway it's 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 really hard um it would be it would be impossible to manage those kind of expenses in the united states so uh canada's healthcare has been like a really large part of um my personal recovery as well i mean the notion that that kind of security you guys don't even realize um the way i describe like uh being overstimulated it feels like your nervous system is on fire and you don't even realize that it's on fire until someone puts you out and or until you put yourself out like in, until you find a way to not um be so overstimulated and then yeah i'll tell you this is the best way that i've been to describe it you ever been cooking when you're cooking a meal and you're like you have a something over the oven on the oven right and then you have that fan going and that fan is just going after a while you grow used to the fan you don't even notice it right but it's just on and it's just so loud and the oven fan is ridiculous but you don't notice it anymore but then but then you turn it off and then that profound peace that you feel in that moment that's what you can get from like reducing stimulation like you can it feels like that just all the time everywhere you go you'll you'll recognize that you're having that feeling of like calm so yeah yeah, it seems like calm would be very important in in your personal regulation. Shakespeare. Shakespeare. This has been the biggest change for me. This thing, are these things called these loop earplug things? Mm -hmm. They're like a, you, I don't know. Anyway, I, I bought them and they're freaking dope. Okay. They really are amazing. Um, Yeah, that's the, that's the thing. You'll, well, I was thinking about it when I was taking a shower today. That That's the way it. Right, that's the way it's uh it feels um that like the oven fan thing yeah they just it's really amazing you don't realize how f freaking noisy the world is until you know you live like a pilgrim for about a week <laughs> these things in your ear and there's just living you know there's nothing no car noise yeah yes i know plenty of people myself included who have used those for concerts um, and it's fascinating when you take them out at the concert and realize how much background and excessive noise you are drowning out because you can still very much hear what you want to hear, which in a concert setting is the performers. So in a day-to-day, mm -hmm. -day, it would then, I would assume, focus in on yep. the main sounds that you need while drowning mm -hmm. out the other. It sets a threshold. Yeah, an important threshold. I think that it's just, like you said, uh, it's funny that you made that observation because I was like, as much as it is like not wanting to hear stuff, like you can also, you're not hearing stuff that's like triggering, like little things. Like, like for me, it would be like a mom scolding her kid or a dad scolding their kid. You know, if I heard that, like I would, it would be like, I would like have an anxiety. If I, yeah, there's just some noises. That, so that threshold is like really important. Mm -hmm. um, you realize. Yes. Now going back to healthcare in Canada, was that one of the reasons you made the move to Canada or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Part of it was that. And, um, part of it, I do climate change. Um, uh, I was living, I was living in the deep South and, uh, and, uh, we, that's where I was a reporter. Uh, and I realized it was getting really hot and stuff. <laughs> I was like, gotta, I think we have to go somewhere uh and i thought canada uh would be great uh i've always i've 
I don't know. I'd never, I've, I never dreamed of living in Canada growing up, but I did dream of living in Vancouver. So I guess in a way I did this. It's like Jurassic park here. No, really the foliage. Look, y'all, these, these maple leaves, these leaves are on steroids. They're like this big. Seriously, seriously. You can make a goddamn sweater out of them. Like you just put this, you know, like, like that's what the, that's what everybody that's unhoused is. Anyway, it's ridiculous. It's they're amazing. It's so the foliage is so beautiful. There's moss growing everywhere. It's very yeah. Of course. And so are you then now like a dual citizen or what was the process legally to move to Canada? Yeah. Experience. I was well, I was married to, to a Canadian slash American. She was she was a she grew up in Wyoming, but uh her mom was Canadian. And so uh she sponsored me. And, uh, and for the three, uh, for three years, uh, to be a permanent resident. Right. So for, uh, for three years, you can, you are a permanent resident, but then you can apply for citizenship. I think after a certain point, I'm eligible to apply for citizenship. Yeah. So will you apply for citizenship? Oh, I, I would definitely, but I don't have the money. It's like 600 Canadian. It's like 600 bucks. I haven't done it. I haven't done it. I'm going to do it soon ish. It needs to be done. Yes, when the timing is right and the funds are there. Yeah. Now you mentioned being a porter, a reporter in Texas. So what was that like? <laughs> well, pretty. It was um, pretty uneventful at first because I was doing uh, sports reporting, which is, oh god, I tell you honestly, I had the. Oh man, it was the worst. Okay, <laughs> it was really funny. All right, I was okay. Look, I'm gonna just t talk about Texas football for a second. It's the most important thing on earth down there. Okay, that's not a joke. In fact, like I'm not very good at football. I'm good, like I'm I'm not even that fast. But when I went into the Navy, I played football uh, on a team with it was the Corman versus the Cooks, the the culinary specialists, and we played out in front of the hospital that we work at. And oh my God, I kicked their ass up and down that field. Nobody, it didn't matter how fast, how big they were, they couldn't touch me. And I was like, that's, I was like, what the hell? That's, it's crazy how much of a difference it makes growing up in a place that like that. And it made me you know, totally understand all those hockey people that are like, like our kids got, our kids two years old and holding this little thing. Yeah. Um, so anyway, being a reporter, uh, being a reporter was really uneventful. And, um, because again, I was covering sports and I had this team that was really, really bad. And that it's, and it's not their fault. The coach has a certain amount. Of, he has a certain amount of funding that he gets to work with and, uh, or he or she or they, it doesn't matter. They get to work with. And, uh, and so, uh, if, if they don't have the kind of, uh, like D one schools or like five uh, a schools, uh, I think there's six a now um like 6000 kids versus like 600 kids the quality of talent you're going to be able to do like to to extrapolate from all of that extract from that uh crowd is 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 significant um and so that's what these this team was put up against like teams that were so much bigger the schools are so much bigger like three times bigger than they were and so they got killed every game okay every freaking game i swear to god it was every fucking game i had to call i had to call the coach and talk to him every game and be like, 
So you lost 45 to seven. <laughs> Do you want to talk about what happened? I tell you, I've never felt worse because that that, that that there was nothing that guy could do. There's nothing. John Madden couldn't do anything with that team. Like, there's, it's not the kids' fault either. It's not the kids' fault because individually they might be very talented in certain regards, but they they need a certain chemistry of team to to uh, to succeed. And anyway, um, I also covered agriculture. I learned a lot about Shakespeare. I learned a lot about um, uh, not Shakespeare. I learned a lot about corn farming, cotton farming. Um, so many other Shakespeare, other types of farming. And, uh, it was, it's really interesting. Um, and the margins are very thin. You guys, <laughs> they don't make very much money, um, each year. Uh, th these guys in the, the amount of work that goes into farm farming is, I do not. And my, my, my uncle has a ranch and has a bunch of cattle and stuff. And now he's, he's so old. His his name is Pepper. Swear to God, <laughs> it's Pepper. I swear to God, yeah. That's a good, I'm saying I'm a, I'm a redneck, man, a hillbilly. So he's got a he's got a bunch of cows now that he's he's not even selling because he he likes them too much. Now, he's getting old and sentimental. He's like, I want them around now. I've been I've been loving them too long. So it's real cute. A lot of work goes into having a farm. He's up like at like four a.m. He may he walks around, peters around the house, and makes breakfast and all this stuff in the t in complete darkness and you know and then he goes out into the dark and then he's working and he might be chasing out coyote like in the middle of the night uh he might you know what i'm saying that's a real thing that's a real concern it's so much work and frankly it's there's not a lot of tangible gratitude <laughs> it's like it's really hard uh farmers especially uh ranchers i don't know I, I i'm not sure about their struggles but i know farmers are really it's really hard um you know because the subsidies change some and this crop insurance is is not very reliable i think for a lot of people um when hurricane harvey hit texas i was covering the area the smallest cotton farm, I think, lost $300,000 worth of stuff. That's the smallest one in the county. There's a lot of cotton farms there, y'all. <laughs> There's a lot of cotton farms in South Texas, okay? It's like, it's a, they don't call it the cotton bowl for nothing. That's all I'm saying. So, yeah. So after that, I, was, uh, I asked if I, I can move into Maine to be the main news writer. And... Um, because I wanted to write news, I you know. Um, anyway, uh, and she let me. Uh, she, and then she had to hire a guy to take over for me, and I had to train him. That was that was fun. Um, but anyway, <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, it's actually quite funny. I I won an award, like you said earlier, for uh, I won an award for feature writing and photography, but for feature writing, I it. It was the first feature I'd ever written. Like I didn't, I I didn't go to journalism school. I didn't. I don't have a university degree. I just have a high school diploma and an EMT certificate. Certificate, uh, and then uh, and some college. I went to like a, a almost about almost two years. I got all the some of, most of my basics out of the way, but that's it. Um, but anyway, uh. I didn't know how to write a feature, and so I had to look it up on Google. I swear to God, I read this is not a joke. I read an I read a, I read a WikiHow article first, and then I was like, 
wait a minute. <laughs> Let me just find a writer that I admire and I'll they a feature they wrote and I'll sort of like um figure it out. I'll I'll devise my own. Uh and I did, and I won an award for that. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, beginner's luck. Um <laughs> yeah. Uh so a lot of it was just getting to know people and realizing that uh small towns are very vulnerable uh places and the people that live within them are even more so uh to corruption and um um like uh police injustice like things like that it's a, it's a lot i mean i was a 911 dispatcher also in the same area um and it was not a fun time not a fun time it's rough it's rough for people of color down there for sure for sure yes yeah. so without you know a college degree without formal training in journalism how did you originally get to being a reporter even just for the sports section right yeah i had to audition um and i was willing to accept a meager wage because i wanted to get paid for being a writer and um, I'd always romanticize the notion. I was totally right, though. It's awesome <laughs> getting paid to be a writer. Yeah, it killed. But it, the, also, it sucks because uh, Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Uh, it's a lot of. Um, it's a lot of doing things that you you don't you might not care to do, like waking up at six o'clock in the morning to show up at a bass fishing contest for kids at a lake, <laughs> and like somehow everyone's there but you when you get there and you showed up like on time. But anyway, it's rough. It's rough. Like, you you got to go to things that you don't want to go to. And um, I, I'm i not really good at collaborating, I realized. And you mentioned <laughs> before we started recording how you have published a book. So what was mm -hmm. that process like and what is the book about? Well, uh, first, I want to say to anyone that wants to write a book, the most important quality is uh, to keep going is that you have to inspire yourself with your work. And the only way to say anything that's worth reading or in, that inspires you, I'm sure is going to be something that's comprehensive in nature. Like it really truly describes different parts of reality and creates a, a coherent picture for the reader to understand, like, this is the way things work. So there's so many, like, if, if you want to become a writer, you have to try to weave your your tapestry has to go all the way through humanities, everything through science, uh, like you know because there's so many moments like, um, uh, for example, Hannibal. I think Hannibal is a is a war uh, conqueror from a long time ago. He me, he found out that you could melt rocks with vinegar, like they just dissolve. They just dissolve, and that that way he was able to. He was able to like conquer some other part of the like country like uh, that was formerly thought to be impenetrable in some way or something. Um, anyway, it's extraordinary stuff. There's so, but it's little things like that. Um, when you try to try to understand like different parts of all of these different uh, vocations, and then and then synthesize them to create a story that really uh, demonstrates your study, uh, and. It's it's so again like if you you're not going to create anything worth reading unless you can find stuff that inspires you already that exists. Yeah, and um, so uh, that's what I did. So for uh, I did it um, by accident. 
Uh, but that's because I've been Shakespeare. I've been writing for quite a while. I won some creative writing contests at the two. I went to two schools, two colleges, and the two colleges that I went to, I won the. the, the they had an annual creative writing contest, and uh, and for poetry and short fiction, and I won all of them. Um, and uh, <laughs> same year, not the same year, two separate years. But anyway, the point is, um, uh. We, uh, I, I realized that uh, what Jordan Peele actually says, if you know Jordan Peele, Key and Peele, or if you've seen um, like Get Out, he directed that, he wrote and directed that, he's brilliant. Um, he said uh, that uh, when he goes to create, he sh it's like shoveling sand into a sandbox, right? And so in that sense, uh, it's, it, he says that uh, I'm shoveling it so that I can make sandcastles of it later. So it's very crude process. At your first draft, in fact, if I were to show you the first draft versus the the final draft of my first book, they are almost it's completely rewritten. But the 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 events stay the same. Everything stays the same event-wise, but there's prose. Uh you don't write prose in the first draft. Never. <laughs> Unless you think of a really good line just move on you gotta you gotta do events like a do like you're writing a script which is like if you've ever written a script i've written a couple scripts when you write a script it's like you know like the dialogue dialogue and then like you might have a brief thing and depending on the director you're working with they don't even want that in there like telling like the person grabs their whatever the, you know no no yeah um anyway uh so it's 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 really about uh trying to find events that are compelling intrinsically interesting uh and finding a way to make them plausible in their connections. Um, and it's really about also writing short stories. So you're writing, so you have to consider each chapter a short story that needs to be whole and complete and, and feel complete. So like, uh, and because you don't want to get into the no, like the mentality that it's part of something larger, because when you do that, you distort reality in a way that's too, omniscient to me i think it's too manipulative and so like and it also sort of derails um the the randomness chaos that's that's a very relevant part of the reader's experience is to like ex like to feel like whoa what the heck was that you know why did that, how did that happen and why did that happen um and it's because oftentimes the writer was like you know what i need to derail what i'm doing right now and then they throw themselves off the track and it's, it's, um, and it's, it's just a way to, to inspire intrigue. And, um, yeah. So consider everything you write, every scene within a chapter needs to feel like a short story too. Uh, transitions. I don't know. There's so, there's so much I, I spent, I spent hours a day, probably 14 hours a day often most days, uh, working, devising the plot of the entire series. So I did that in the first three months and then built up upon that structure, um, that careful construction uh, in pieces. Um, and by the time two and a half, almost three months was, I'd written uh, 162,000 words. Uh, for anyone that doesn't know, The Hobbit's 98,000 words. So it's a significant, it's almost double, it's almost almost not not quite but it's 1.8 180% whatever uh longer uh which is really 
um, a lot of a lot of words. It's a lot of words. Uh, and the rewrite actually took more than a year to do, which is it's much more careful. Uh, every word, yeah, I love it. I love words so much. So then it sounds like this book is turning into a series. So can you share a little bit about, you know, what the book is about, what the plans are for future potential books and that sort of thing? Well, this, uh, I wanted to write an adventure ultimately for everyone. And um, I love uh, Tolkien as as much as even obviously I think I would appreciate him in a different sense too, uh, more so because of, as a writer. Um, but I love, I love Tolkien's work. Uh, however, like it omits certain modern sentiments that I feel like are, are, are critical, you know, like, um, the notion that people of color exist for one <laughs> and then that, um, you know, that there's, uh, trans, uh, trans human, trans human, there's, there's, uh, and there's people that, um, like there's women warriors, uh, and there's uh, non-binary, and there's gay people, and there's all kinds of different demographics that are very relevant to people's lives and and uh, and to their identity. Uh, and so, and 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 even handy and different disabilities. Uh, Shakespeare, there's people with uh, cerebral palsy, uh, blindness, deafness, um, people that were uh, mutilated in some sense, and in, in, either in war. Um, in fact, if I were to describe, it's really my attempt to be comprehensive in in my approach to fantasy. I see fantasy is always uh, a lot of fantasies are very limited. They 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 talk about their plot, the plot within it, the and and it's really not much beyond the two things, like the whatever the 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 mission and the goal, right? Um, and so for me, uh, it was about really describing the human experience within that world rather than trying to create a fantasy world for the reader to live in. It was like experience, like what would it be like for real humans to live in a world like this? How would you react? How would it be like, what would it be like? It tr- and that's what I tried to demonstrate. Um, and so there's a lot of, um, a lot of the one thing that was really important to me, I think was demonstrating healthy relationships between older women and young men, uh, I feel like older women can appreciate the value and understand the value of young men, but that's not reciprocated um, in a in a way that's healthy. I think, uh, and so I there's a lot of older women in the book that are really dope, uh, and they're like you know, which is reflective of real life, of course. But they she, they're they're awesome, and um, uh, and there's a bunch of them, and uh, there's gay giants <laughs> there's a uh, you know um there's uh pirates there's you know uh emperors uh you know and uh i don't know there's an extraordinary amount of immigrants there i talk about immigrants and i talk because i am an immigrant uh, i know that technically i'm an immigrant but there's there's certain components of being an immigrant that i do now understand like like breaking the law for example like if i break the law i don't want to get deported right and so like i'm really careful about that. And so I understand that paranoia of being an immigrant and having that fear. I don't, I can't, I don't have it to the same extent, of course, because I'm not a person of color. So I'm not, you know, picked out very often for anything. I've never actually really had that sort of problem. Um, and so, um, there's so many experiences that I wanted to impart and 
and to explain um, the uh, the nature of people's suffering uh, and what their su- and successes truly. Um, and I also wanted to focus like Game of Thrones d- does a wonderful job of many things. However, like it talks a lot about rich people, and I was kind of over it by the end. And like, so my book is all about regular people um, in extraordinary circumstances. Yeah. And it's the mother problem is climate change. That's the largest, um, the problem that um, exacerbates all the others, the civil wars, um, the territories and rebellion. uh, And uh, I mean, oh my God, there's really so many things, honestly. There's so many pirates there. Like I said, there's pirates, all kinds of stuff. Slavers. There's slave. I talk about slavery. Um, but there's no racism or sexism at all. There are experiences that are member to that crime, to that sin, of course. Like there are things that happen um that are very relevant to people that present as women that they're that their experiences with um you know sexual assault and things like that. Uh it's an important uh it was important for me though to like omit overt racism and sexism because it wasn't it just didn't i wanted it again to be an adventure for everyone and i didn't so there's someone's gender is is hardly relevant at all um except in for me in a sentimental sense to help be part of um you know uh, representation helping with representation yeah i think it's so important that you focused on bringing the human experience and the diversity of the world into your fantasy world within the book. I think that's um, Mm. very commendable. That isn't necessarily seen very often. You do kind of see those moments where there's focuses on certain groups of people, for example, Game of Thrones Mm. and rich society. Um, So it's great to hear that you've got that going on. Now you made a bit of a joke earlier on um, with your Tourette's, and Shakespeare, and you are a writer. Do you have any fascination in Shakespeare? Oh my God, yes. Um, I want to. If you read my work and you respect me at all as a writer, I hope you would believe me when I say that Shakespeare truly is the best writer in English that ever lived. And there's a reason why he's celebrated, and his work is like three layers removed, like in in a, in a way that's so gorgeous. And actually. The trick is, it's really it's really subtle. It's very very subtle. But I've been able to produce Shakespeare. I, what I believe is sounds like Shakespearean prose. Um, so uh, he omits. He tries really hard not to use the word "the." That's it. So if he so if he needs to describe something, the car, like the cat, the whatever did this thing or did that thing, the butler. No, it's uh, you know it's a whole. You gotta, you have to rewrite it in a really, and it, it could be done very elegantly and very musically. Um, Shakespeare is, uh, oh man, I, I can't even. He's so, he's so much better than everybody else that it's like he's like the Wayne Gretzky. Like Canadians will understand this because, but Wayne Gretzky is like, if in professional sports, I think he's considered like essentially like the greatest athlete ever. Like if you compared him to like his other his peers 
he's so far better than them that it's like I think I think his he has more assists than like the next three people combined. And it doesn't matter. The point is Shakespeare is that. He's that to everybody. And and you can't you can't I don't know. He's he's extraordinary. Uh and man, man did he love. You can tell. Everything that he wrote, like it's so the reason why it's the prose the way it's born sonnets like that wind in disgrace with fortunes in men's eyes i all alone beweep my outcast state and trouble a deaf heaven with my bootless cries and look upon myself and curse my fate so wind in disgrace with fortunes in men's eyes he's saying what i mean these words each word the brevity necessary and the compassion necessary um like to to discover and to realize that that word can be used in that way to describe uh i trouble a deaf heaven with my bootless cries and he's because he saw the suffering of all these people he said i trouble a deaf heaven even the word trouble he's it's almost sarcastic i trouble a deaf heaven with my bootless cries and look upon myself and curse my fate useless Wishing to be like him, like him with friends possessed, like that man's art and that man's scope. I don't remember, I don't remember the rest. Um, uh, it's he's it's gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, oh man, yeah. It's the yeah. You have to love humans so much to write like that. You have to because you can't. You wouldn't describe it that way if you didn't. Yes. And it's, it's great to hear, you know, your, your passion for Shakespeare and, um, knowing his inspiration that he brings to your work, um, as well to, to tie all of it together. Now going back, um, you did serve in the U S Navy, um, even though now you're living in Canada. Um, do you want to talk a little bit just about your experience as, uh, in, in the Navy. In the, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's actually really funny because, uh, <laughs> after a while, it really does feel like a job, like a regular job, you know, um, except you can go to jail for not showing up to work, <laughs> you know, like it's a whole thing. It's a real serious thing not to show up to work, um, or for duty. Right. It's a, you, very, very punishable stuff. Um, first of all, you will not, you would not believe how boring boot camp is. Actually, like a lot of it is just sitting around and waiting. Like you're waiting for your appointment in the barracks. And let me tell you something. It's one of those things. Like for the first couple of weeks, you're not allowed to do anything. But after a while, the drill sergeants, which they're called RDCs in the Navy, re recruit division commanders. But I'll just call them drill sergeants. Um, so they they're they're not lenient at all at first, and then of course they get to know you, and um, and then and that dynamic changes significantly. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, for example, I remember uh, there's this, there's a period where you have to go uh, to general quarters. The general quarters means on a on a ship means that um you're going into battle like you need to get to your battle stations um general quarters general quarters like 
battle stations and then you you everybody runs to where they're going it looks like one of them pirate ships like where they're trying to get their cannons ready and their sails and all so it's people doing that um it's a whole thing it's very serious um yeah and um at the you have to stay up for like 24 hours straight at least you cannot like you can't fall asleep or you fail like you're not allowed to fall asleep and so you like and at some points you're just sitting there like you're sitting down <laughs> and then um but you're moving from these room to room uh throughout the night um so you stay up all day and then you go into the into the nighttime and then you do this thing and then when you're done uh the, you have to stay up the entire next day also and then you go to you're not allowed to go to sleep until the nighttime uh but they didn't do that to us <laughs> they, they said they said <laughs> okay so but one of my drill, drill sergeants sounded like Mr. T. And so he talked like this. <laughs> he had a really funny voice. And so he would say, he would say, y'all look for uh y'all look for garbage underneath the bunks. And that meant go underneath the bunks and go to sleep. So we were hiding underneath the bunks. Because uh if anybody walked in with any kind of authority, it was like, you know, get up and get out. Um it's uh it's uh, but it's also punctuated by sheer terror. I remember one night, it was like two o'clock in the morning, and I was woken up by a drill sergeant that I don't like from a different division screaming in my face. And I have, I don't, I didn't know what he said at all because he ended his sentence when I was alert enough to understand what was happening. And I got up and was at attention. And he was just like looking at me, like glaring, and then he just left. And I just climbed back into my bunk and went to sleep. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know what was going on. It was so bizarre. Um, but anyway, uh, after the after that, I went to core school, which is corpsman to be a corpsman, and learned uh, uh, triage, combat, casualty care. Um. Or T triple C, and just a just a, a much broader version, and it's like it's it's basically getting your EMT certification, except um, the government's like there's some other stuff you can do that we only let nurses do, but we're gonna let you do it too. <laughs> so in the civilian world, there are things like I couldn't start IVs in the civilian world, and I wasn't allowed to like push certain meds, but in the Navy, they're like, yeah, you gotta go do that, go do that for that guy, and then go do that for that guy and that guy, and it's. Um, it's weird. Uh, it's weird getting so comfortable with people too, that you, you develop weird. It's just a weird dynamics, friendships. It's strange. It's really bizarre. Um, my first duty station was in Naval Air Station, Jacksonville, Florida. And, uh, I was at the hospital there and, uh, it was, uh, Anyway, it it was a lot of uh, fun until it wasn't. Uh, I had the Tourette's, and then they uh, they offered me to to go to get out, and I was like, "Hell yeah!" Because like, if you are not deployable anymore, I would have been doing like sweeping and mopping and dusting things all day, and just not stuff that would have been stimulating. And so I I uh, I got out and tried to go to school. 
Well, it sounds like you had some interesting experiences and some commendable <laughs> work to be done um, during that period of young adulthood. Yeah. Now, before I start to wrap things up, is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners today? Hmm. Um, I think that people should reflect on their contempt for humanity as a whole and realize that it's based on fear and that we can we can um, bloom something more worthwhile and ennobling together. Yes, I think uh, those are some very good words and respect is very important. So I appreciate you sharing that here. Now, as I mentioned before we started recording at the end of all my episodes, I do ask my guests a random question. So my question for you today is what sort of video game do you enjoy? Oh, uh, MMORPGs. I'm a big WoW fan. I play a lot of WoW. Do you want to, I know what most of those terms mean. Do you want to explain what all of those acronyms <laughs> oh, are? MMORPG. Well, an RPG, of course, is a role-playing game. Everyone knows that. And so Dungeons and Dragons is a role-playing game. Uh, you play a role, right? So, um, and uh, MMO just means massive multiplayer online. It's online. So World of Warcraft is online. It has millions of players all over the world. Uh, and it's for me at this point, it's like it's like the video game version of The Office. Like it's very, it's just a comfort game. I've been playing for since I was a kid. I was like 14 when I started. Now I'm 34. Oh God. Anyway, thank you <laughs> um, for that. Uh, I love anything with a good story. With a, with a good story. Yeah. All right, that brings this episode to a close. If you would like to connect with Christoph, a link tree of his will be in the description. So that brings you to his social media, his book, along with other good links that he has provided that you can go and check out. And of course, if you'd like to connect with the podcast, our website is in the description as well. That brings you to all of our past episodes, all past resources and social media, along with the podcast social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. So Support of those pages is always appreciated. And if you would like to be a guest on the show, my email is in the description. That is always the best way to reach me. And if you would like to support the podcast monetarily, there is a link to do that as well. So thank you so much, Christoph, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>